Morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 21. So Philippians 3, verses 7 to 21, page 981 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. So this is the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, starting in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Amen. You may have a seat. Morning, Bethel. So if uh, you're visiting with us or maybe you've missed um, a couple weeks here, we are in the middle of a series called We Are Pilgrims. And we're considering how, especially in this Advent season, we live between the Advents. All of our lives are lived out in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And that has everything to do with how we live in the present. So um, hopefully we've seen in weeks past how practical and important um, the proper perspective to look back in faith, to look forward in faith, is to our life in the present. And we're going to continue that here in Hebrews 11 this morning. So I want to open with a quote by C.S. Lewis. Might as well just get ready. I'm going to quote from C.S. Lewis quite a bit this morning. Um, So I hope that's okay with you. Um, If not, tough. Um, (laughs) Now, you could vote with your feet and leave. All right, so this is from The Weight of Glory. And he says, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some 
response. To bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory, in the sense described, becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. So I don't know if you immediately connect with what's going on in that passage, but maybe it will help to start to think about how strong these desires are at an earthly level. Okay, Have you ever noticed how strong a desire you have to meet with some response in, you know, from other people? Have you noticed how deeply you long for approval, the approval of others? How deeply you long to please people in your life whose opinion matters? So let me give you just a few examples, just again to stir our thinking here a little bit. How about a husband with a wife? A husband deeply desires his wife to respond. Certainly in the bedroom, but also just respond with respect and honor. It's a deep desire in a man. Or a wife with a husband, deep desire that he notice certain things and appreciate certain things. How about if you're an author? It's probably worse to write a book and get no response than it is to never write a book because we so long for a response. How about an artist with her art or a musician with his music? I mean, how bad is it to write a song and just nobody gives a rip? (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. A child with a parent, how deeply a a little girl wants to know from her daddy that she's beautiful. Or a child who makes things and keeps trying to show the parent, and the parent's just too busy to give any attention. We want to meet with response. Or a parent with a child, a mom does something nice for a child, and the child doesn't even notice doesn't appreciate it. Or how about coaches? Whether it's with the administration or the school community and even players, they want people to be happy with them. Or if you're an architect or a builder with a client or a designer with your client or any worker, whatever you do, whatever you make, you want your clients, you want your boss to be happy with you, don't you? We long for that kind of response. Well, how about with God? Do you want God to be pleased with you? Is that even right to say it that way? I mean, does that sound dangerous? Like we're trying to work our way into God's good graces? Okay, here goes Lewis again, all right? Here's a category that we need to have in view here, because there is a kind of pleasing God that's good. 
It can be dangerous because we can be trying to scramble into his good graces, but that's not what we're going to be talking about this morning. Listen to what he says here. He says, nothing is so obvious in a child as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Apparently, what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what is, in fact, the humblest, the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures, namely the specific pleasure of the inferior. The pleasure of a child before its father, a pupil before his teacher, a creature before its creator. I am not forgetting how horribly this most innocent desire is parodied in our human ambitions or how very quickly in my own experience the lawful pleasure of praise from those whom it was my duty to please turns into the deadly poison of self-admiration. But I thought I could detect for a moment, a very, very short moment before this happened, during which the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. Perfect humility dispenses with modesty. End quote. He's getting at what we have in Hebrews 11. So look at Hebrews 11:6. If you're not there already, we're really going to be looking at verses 13 to 16. That's the main focus, but we're going to see some context as well that's really important. So if you aren't there already, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find Hebrews 11.6 on page 1007. <clears throat> this is the main issue here. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God which assumes that you should want to please God, right? And that we should please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So to be rebuffed by a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend or a client or a boss, it hurts. But what if... The face, the only face that ultimately matters, turns away from you. Again, Lewis, in the end, the, the face, which is the terror of the universe or the delight of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. And it all boils down to the issue of faith. And that's what Hebrews is all about. And that's certainly what chapter 11 is all about. But last week we saw at the end of chapter 10 some things that lead right in. So look again at the end of chapter 10. Again, it's on page 1007. Look at verse 37. Talking about the second coming of Christ, the second advent Advent just means coming, so Christmas time, Advent season, the first coming of Christ, but we also are awaiting the second coming. It says in, in verse 37, for yet a little while, and the coming one, the Messiah, will come, he will return and will not delay, but in the meantime, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, caving in, shrinking back in fear, not in faith, but in unbelief, 
My soul has no pleasure in him. Do you see how faith and pleasing God are already in focus there at the end of chapter 10? So then the writer says to his readers, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed because of our unbelief, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Hebrews is all about people that were in danger of drifting. Okay? Drifting back into what was comfortable, drifting away from Jesus, rather than running and following hard after him. So the author exhorts them, don't shrink back. Trust him. Keep running the race that's set before you. They had need of endurance. So do we. I feel it. Do you feel that? Like, how deeply you need the grace for endurance to run the race that's set before you? It's not just them, it's us as well. So if we run this race by faith, what is faith? What does it look like? Well, chapter 11 answers that question. It begins with, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And then it gives some examples. The writer gives some examples. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. Normal faith. This is what normal faith looks like. We need to see examples of it so that we can follow those who've gone before us. And normal Christianity is pilgrim Christianity. We are pilgrims between the first and the second advent, and we run the race that's set before us. We need to see examples. In fact, in chapter 13, it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We need to see what this looks like in flesh and blood. That's what chapter 11 is all about. In fact, that's what Philippians 3 is all about that Tyler read. Paul is giving his own example. You know, follow me as I follow Christ. And then in verses 13 to 16, there's this really important summary in the middle of the chapter. So let's look at it, and this is our text for this morning. 11, 13 to 16. The writer says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them or welcomed them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So, Three points this morning. You'll see them on the slides, and you can follow along. In, there's a little sheet of paper in your bulletin if you want to do it that way. Um, so first point, dying in faith, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. So Abraham and Sarah didn't see their offspring become numerous like the stars in the sky. God made that promise. Abraham saw that promise, he welcomed it, but he didn't actually see it fulfilled, right? He died before it was fulfilled. They didn't see the true and everlasting promised land, the city with foundations. They did receive the promise, but they didn't receive the fullness that the promise pointed to. So look at how verse 13 continues. But having seen them 
and greeted them from afar, which, do you notice this is actually parallel to the definition of faith? Having seen them, conviction of things not seen, they saw him with the eyes of faith, not physical eyes, and greeted them, welcomed them. That's the assurance of things hoped for, things you want. You're longing for these things, and they, they not only saw them and just acknowledged them with their heads, they welcomed them in their hearts. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. They received the promises, but not the things that were promised. And you know what? It's the same for us. Do you feel this tension? Do you know this tension? The now and the not yet? So when you become a Christian, your eyes are open to what is really valuable, like Paul in Philippians 3. I used to count all this to my resume. Count that as real gain. I knew who I was because of this or that on my resume. But then, and Jesus seemed like, oh, what, what's the weakness? false messiah, whatever. And then his eyes are opened and he counts this as loss. And Christ is gain. And the hope of the resurrection becomes real. And this better homeland comes into view. And it's where your citizenship is. It's where you belong. It's what you've always longed for. And yet it's off in the future at the end of the journey. So It's what faith looks like in this age. It genuinely sees promises, convictions of things not seen, and it genuinely welcomes those promises, assurance of things hoped for, but we have to wait. We have to journey until we finally receive them at the end. There's this eager longing for the fullness that is to come. There's this unsettledness in the meantime. There's an ache a sense of even displacement. Do we resonate with this? We need to resonate with this. We're not home yet. And so verse 13 concludes, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This is normal Christianity. Listen, we're on, Christians are on a work visa from heaven. This world is passing away. It's crumbling Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so if our heart and our citizenship is in heaven with God, he's our treasure through Christ, then we're never going to totally feel at home and settled here on earth. Listen, you know what it would be like to actually settle down and, you know, view this life as all all there is or where our satisfaction is really going to be found? It would be like, I, I don't know where, what, what kind of connotations you have with home, but let's say they're really great, and you've got some little Italian mama who cooks for you, okay? Thank you. Um, I've got a little Italian mama that cooks for me, so home is like, I want to get there. Mike, can I get a witness? All right, there we go. So if that's home, imagine traveling on the interstate, and you hit one of those rest stops, and you just decide, this place is awesome. I'm going to just burn quarters till I die in the arcade and eat Sbarro for the rest of my life. <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's insanity. Why would you settle down if mama's cooking is on the other end? Wouldn't you want to like get back in the car and keep going? 
okay, yeah, there's a time for breaks, and that's all well and good, but settle down? Are you kidding me? So look again at this term acknowledge at the end of verse 13. It's actually a strong word, and it's an important word in the book of Hebrews. It's the same root word that's used elsewhere, speaking of holding fast our confession. So normal Christianity, here's what it's like here. We are pilgrims. Are we willing to publicly confess? It's it's not just acknowledgement. It's actually confession. Are we willing to publicly confess that we're strangers and exiles on earth? Are you willing to go public with your true citizenship? I mean, that could sound a little cheesy, maybe. It's not cheesy. It's what faith sounds like when it goes public. Do you ever talk like this? This is normal. So holidays, you know, we're in the midst of it. You're going to go be with family, um, or certainly at work this stuff's going to come up, and with all the political craziness that continues, conversations at work or with your family, So people are moaning and whatever, and the sky is falling. And what if you prayerfully speak up and say something about your hope? This is just an example. It's not all of what this would look like, but just an example. You know, I share your concerns, but can I also just say that there will never be a politician who will be our Messiah? Like the best of men, best of women, are just people at best, and You know what? All my chips are on the Jesus square. He's the only Messiah this world has ever known. In fact, can I just read you something? This this is my hope, and it's Christmas time. Like, maybe you've heard this before. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That, that's what I'm longing for. That's what I'm a part of. Like, what if you just went public with your faith and acknowledged that you're just not expecting this to be home? That's being prepared with a reason for the hope that's within you and with gentleness and respect, like it says in 1 Peter 3. That's normal pilgrim Christianity. People who acknowledge, confess that they're strangers and exiles. They've seen the promises of the new creation. They've welcomed them. Have you welcomed them? And we know that heaven can't be made on earth. I think Underneath so much of our complaining and griping and entitlement and whatever, we just think we think we can make heaven on earth or that we deserve it or something. But Christian pilgrims recognize, no, that's all ultimately only promised in the future. And we can spend our lives now, it's ours, we can spend our lives now bringing little foretastes of that heavenly life and hope and love to those around us as we journey home, because we'd love to bring as many people with us as possible. So back to verse 13 here. These all died in faith. I just want to say this is 
a description of normal Christianity. I, I would encourage you to just pray that, that God would make you normal. <laughs> just like New Testament normal. Bible normal. And I think this should be one of our main goals at Bethel. To help each other die in faith. Life is hard. It can get really hard. And we are prone to wander. You know what the church is? The church is like a perseverance co-op. Like, if, if I'm going to make it home, I'm going to need your help. I'm going to be in the ditch sometimes, and I'm going to need somebody to help get me out, like, you know, so I don't die of hypothermia in the ditch. Just You might even need to throw me on your back and get me on the path and revive me a little bit, and then we can walk together, and then down the road, you're going to be in the ditch, and I'll get you out. We have need of endurance, like it says in chapter 10. We need to make it across the finish line, to make it home. And you know what? Some of us are going to be limping. You know some loved ones that have limped their way into heaven, and you felt like, we really need to help them at this time because they are struggling and we want them to make it across the finish line. Remember this woman that had ALS that became a believer shortly before she got ALS? And I visited her like weekly for a while and it was literally like (laughs) I watched her spiritually get stronger as her body was completely just falling apart. And she made it. Like she made it home. Some of us are going to be crawling. We might need to be carried, but our goal is that we all make it. So we are not going to receive or experience in this life everything that's promised. But that doesn't mean it's not real or that it's a false promise. It doesn't mean that you're not real or that God has let you down or abandoned you. Normal is we live between the times. We've received the promise, but only by faith. It'll only be by sight in the future. So that shapes our expectations for now. Like, are the promises true for Abel? Some of these people, the reason they're in chapter 11 is so that they can keep speaking to us, keep like cheering us along on the race of faith. Abel, he's got something to say. He trusted God. He pleased God. And it got him killed. Are the promises true for him? Yeah. Abraham waited 25 years and Sarah for the promised child to be born. And then God even tested them by telling, them, telling Abraham to kill Isaac, the son of promise. Obviously, he stopped him and he provided a substitute sacrifice. Good setup for Christ in our place. But again, we are going to face some sore trials. Some of them are going to be intense and short-lived. Some of them are going to be long and drawn out. And like this ache is going to be protracted. So I don't know what it is for you. Marital trouble, abuse, unfaithfulness, maybe a painful divorce. Maybe you're given to deep struggles with depression. Maybe you have a deep longing that's just never been fulfilled. 
It's good longing. And what if it is never fulfilled in this life? Maybe you've been marginalized on account of your faith. Maybe you have to fight back the suffocating fingers of failure that always seem like they're just closing in on you, like you've just, I just never measure up. Maybe you have some physical suffering. Do you see how those things can start to make you question whether God's real or whether you're real? Or whether his promises are real. And that's why without faith it's impossible to please him because anyone who comes to him must believe that he is. Don't scrap the fact that God is real and that he rewards those who seek him. Normal Christians receive promises, but they don't receive what's promised always in this life. So healing and health Yes and no. It's not promised in this life. But the hope of the resurrection is ours. And one day there's not going to be any more death or suffering anymore. That is yours. So if you are struggling and you've got cancer, do you see how you need to fight for faith to believe that future promise? Safety and security. There's no promise of that physically in this life. But oh, there's a day coming when the gates are not shut because there's no threats anymore. There's no locks on the doors in the new heavens and the new earth. How about relational fulfillment? Again, yes and no, you've got God. No one, no one can separate you from his love, but you may have some holes that never get filled in this life, but oh, in the new heavens and the new earth, a world of love, perfect fulfillment relationally financial provision, wealth. No promise here in this life. But the riches of his mercy and the inheritance, all things are yours. <laughs> Crazy stuff the Bible says. And here's the other thing. All those no's in the short term are intended to test our faith and make the future promises that much sweeter. It's just hard to believe that. But it's true. It is so, so vital that those tests don't, in our minds, in our hearts, turn into reasons not to trust in the Lord. Again, this is the fight of faith. This is what Hebrews is helping us with. He is the rewarder of those who seek him. Hang on. Trust him. It's all worth it. We have need of endurance, and we will endure by the grace of God, the promises laid hold of by faith. It's the only way we can keep running without giving way to temptation and bitterness and cynicism and depression and anger at God or anger at others. We all have need of this endurance by faith, which is why we need to fight for each other's faith, to help each other along this pilgrim path, to walk by faith, not by sight, to run the race of faith. So Hebrews 10 we looked at it last week. Let us consider how to stir up one another. We need each other to love and good works. This is what we do in community groups. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, second advent, drawing near. So we need to be this perseverance co-op. We've got to fight for faith here to encourage one another. 
Back in chapter 6 of Hebrews, again, just to show you how important this is, one of the clear reasons that the writer is writing, he says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Happily ever after is actually coming. (laughs) The fight of our life is the fight of faith, the fight for faith. Listen, I I love this quote. If you've been here a while, you've heard it before. Peter Kreef says, Now suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny less a scratch on a penny. Like, what if we really believe that? Our future is radiantly bright. So do you see how practical that pilgrim perspective is for now? C.S. Lewis again, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot, on fire, the... Uh, that's a typo. The apostles themselves, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. And then he says later, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. So again, this is how we need to learn to live by faith with our eyes fixed on the prize like Paul in Philippians 3, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward the prize with our eyes fixed on Jesus. This is how how we're going to die in faith. Remember Paul in Philippians 1 says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We should aspire to this. This is normal Christianity. So listen, the younger generations in this church need to see Christians finish well and die well. The world needs to see it too. I mean, this world is dying for hope and something worth living and dying for. So we, the church, ought to get good at dying in faith. And we will die in faith when we learn to live by faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's getting the eyes of our hearts on true gain, on Christ, and on the promises that are ours through him. We know where our true home is. We know where our satisfaction is. And so thus, point number two, we desire a better country. Look at verses 14 to 16. For people who speak thus, namely those who acknowledge that they're strangers and exiles, confessing that, people who speak like that, Make it clear 
that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a better homeland. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So this is normal pilgrim Christianity here, seeking a homeland, (coughs) desiring a better heavenly country. Listen, those who, normal Christianity is those who don't look back with longing at what they left behind, but with longing for what awaits us. So if you look back at biblical history, looking back with longing at what you've left behind is a dangerous thing. Who comes to mind? Lot's wife? Why did she want to look back? I don't think it was, she was curious at what fire from heaven looks like. Her heart was too much in that city. So she became like those who were in that city. Pillar of salt, just as that city was brought to, burned up to be a pile of salt. Or how about the Israelites in the wilderness? They looked back with longing. I mean, God had delivered them miraculously. He's taking them to the promised land. They're in the wilderness. They're tested, and they just question everything. And they start looking back with longing at slavery. What? They wished themselves back. It would have been better. And what happened to them? They fell in the wilderness. They didn't make it into the promised land. Or Jesus warns in, in Luke chapter 9, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Same thing with Philippians 3, the passage Tyler read at the scripture reading. So I gave away some um, copies of Pilgrim's Progress last week. Um, good book to be reading if we're talking about being Christian pilgrims. Um, so those of you that are familiar with the story, you know how it begins. Those of you that aren't familiar, this is how it begins. It's an allegory of the Christian life, okay? So Christian's the main character, and he was living in the city of destruction. And he's plagued by this heavy burden on his back. It's his sin. And he hears that the city of destruction that he dwelt in was going to be destroyed. And so he's fearful of that future, and he's burdened by his sin, and he cries out, what shall I do? And then there's this man, evangelist, no subtleties here, you know. Okay, so evangelist comes to him and points him in the right direction, that he might have his burden removed and journey to the celestial city. Okay, and here's the quote. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. He had not run very far from his home when loved ones called after him to turn back. He put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. So without looking back, he fled toward the narrow gate that leads to life. So have you noticed that if you're not careful, longing for the wrong things, things that are not good for you, those longings can grow pretty easily, can't they? I mean, in little ways, and I don't mean to make this trivial, but the little ways are very ordinary, and it's just that's the kind of stuff that eats away at our faith, at looking to the future reward and living like pilgrims. So let's say you get involved in ministry and Sundays are kind of busy. They're full of ministry. Maybe you're hosting or leading a community group or you're 
teaching in Sunday school and you've been doing it for a while and the kids, they even listen. And let's say it's summer. It's not summer. It's really cold. But let's say it's warmer. You're driving past people heading to the beach for the weekend. It's a long weekend. Maybe it's Saturday. You're going to study your, you know, Sunday school lesson and they're going to the beach. Or it's Sunday and you get up early and get in here and people are sleeping in and heading to brunch. And you start looking back with longing, this revisionist history blindness that's, oh, must be nice. Sure was nice when it's little ways. Or big ways. Have you gone through some like serious valleys and thought, is this all even true? Is this all worth it? Whoa, do you see how easy it is to drift and wander and how dangerous, how deceitful sin is? Longing for what we left behind? Yeah, like back when I was blind to my sin and on, on the conveyor belt to hell and I didn't even know it? Why would, I wa- why would I want to go back there? The focus is not just ne- negative, not just not longing for the city of destruction. It's positively cultivating our longing for the city with foundations. So what does it look like? Exhibit A, we'll just look at two examples here in Hebrews 11, Abraham and Moses. Look at verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Do you see? He was looking, just intentionally focusing on this city with foundations. He left comfort. He left his hometown with his family to follow where God led him. Example of what it looks like. Exhibit B, Moses. Look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. How in the world do you do that? Do you, I mean, you realize this? So, the Israelites are suffering in Egypt. You know, Pharaoh's going to kill all the babies. Moses gets saved, you know, by, you know, they put the baby in the box in the, in the River Nile. Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby. Oh, would you nurse the baby? Okay. But he grows up in, I mean, total luxury and privilege. He's got all the education, all the power, money, women, everything at his disposal. Like, Talk about big daddy deep pockets. Pharaoh is your father. And you refuse that and you choose mistreatment instead? And you consider that greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt? Like, how in the world do you do that? He was looking to the reward. It's normal. He left what looked like gain. He counted it all as loss in view of the surpassing value that God promised. So Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 6 are all over this. 
He believed that God was and that he, not Pharaoh, was the rewarder. So how do we do that? How do we look forward to the city with foundations whose designer and builder is God? How do we look to the reward? I mean, how, are you saying, like, desire a place we've never been? Like, how do you get homesick for a place you've never been? What's up with that? Well, okay. Even though we've never been there, it's actually the city of our birth. If you're a Christian, you were born again, right? You're spiritually dead, and then you're made alive together with Christ, and so you're born from above. New spiritual life, it's new life from God. And we actually, we actually long for it more than we know. In fact, I can't remember who the quote is, but all the transcendent desires that you see lived out on the silver screen, you know, all these grand epic hopes messiahs and saviors. See, it's all an echo of the real story. Somebody wrote that even when a man knocks at the door of a a brothel, it's really heaven that he's after. It's really God that he's after. Because only God can bring the kind of transcendence that that man is seeking. So here's an extended quote by Lewis. This is longer, but you'll see why. And then we'll be finishing up with one final brief point on the pleasure of God. So I just encourage you to listen. This is really important. I think it really is practical for cultivating this kind of looking to the reward orientation of life that maybe is very foreign for us. Again, it's C.S. Lewis, and it's in The Weight of Glory. In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, we, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves, the secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past, but all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. When they try to convince you that earth is your home, notice how they set about it. 
They begin by trying to persuade you that earth can be made into heaven. Advertising. Thus giving a sop to your sense of exile in earth as it is. Next, they tell you that this fortunate event is still a good way off in the future, thus giving a sop to your knowledge that the fatherland is not here and now. Finally, lest your longing for the trans-temporal should awake and spoil the whole affair, they use any rhetoric that comes to hand to keep out of your mind the recollection that even if all the happiness they promised could come to man and earth, yet still each generation would lose it by death, including the last generation of all, and the whole story would be nothing, not even a story forever and ever. Do what they will, then, we remain conscious of a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. But is there any reason to suppose that reality offers any satisfaction to it? Nor does the being hungry prove that we have bread. But I think it may be urged that this misses the point. A man's physical hunger does not prove that man will get any bread. He may die of starvation on a raft in the Atlantic. But surely a man's hunger does prove that he comes of a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where eatable substances exist. In the same way, though I do not believe that my desire for paradise proves that I shall enjoy it, I think it a pretty good indication that such a thing exists and that some men will. The sense in this universe that we are treated as strangers the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door, we discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. So did you hear the paragraph near the end, the second to the last paragraph? It's the quote that I began with, this longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, this Glory, meaning good report with God, acceptance with God, response, acknowledgement, welcome into the heart of things. Well, I want to close with a thought on the pleasure of God. So those you've longed to please in this life, their smile, isn't it oftentimes fickle? Isn't it oftentimes elusive? Doesn't it seem like it's a moving target? Maybe you grew up with a father or mother that you really wanted to please and you felt like you could never please them, that the Smile was a moving target. Not so with our Heavenly Father. We, enemies of God, who have spurned His love and rejected Him, He sends His Son, the Son whom He loves, with whom He is well pleased. And that Son willingly humbles Himself, takes on flesh and blood, to save flesh and blood sinners like us, to make us part of his family, to reunite us with God, reconciliation. So Jesus embraced shame. He was humiliated even to the point of death on the cross in order to honor us with the rights and privileges of being his family. Hebrews 2.10 says this, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, 
should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So God made Jesus perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. So how how do you get in on this? How do you get in on this family? How do you please God? You just have to trust him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So if we doubt his existence, if we doubt that he's really the rewarder, and we just keep on that path, we're going to try to seek it elsewhere. But ultimately, the problem is we're going to starve our souls of the only one who can really satisfy us. We will be ashamed of him, But then when Jesus returns, he'll be ashamed of us. But if we trust him as our great reward, as the great rewarder, our desire is going to be to be with him, right? We will desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore, verse 16, God is not ashamed to be called our God because he's prepared a city for you. He's not ashamed to be called the God of those who desire his reward above all earthly treasures. So at the second advent, when Christ returns, he will proudly claim his own. And Christian, you will hear the words you have longed for all your life. They've already come down in the gospel. We are justified by faith, made righteous, accepted with God. But one day, that declaration is going to be cosmically declared. And for those who trust God through Christ, they will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.